If you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them now and turn to Mark chapter 9, which will be our passage for our time together this morning. Mark chapter 9 will be in verses 1 through 13. Uh, If you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's on page 793. 793. The biggest decisions in our lives always require us to do a cost and benefit analysis. You understand what I mean by that? It's like when you go to crumble cookie and you see those delicious cookies and you realize there's 880 calories in just one of them. And then you have an angel on your shoulder saying, eat it. And then Heath jumps up and says, don't eat it. It always requires a cost and benefit analysis analysis as we live in the world. What we try to do is try to determine, is the thing that I'm about to do, is it actually worth it? The thing that I'm about to commit to or pursue or buy, is it worth it in the end? So think, for example, we've had several engagements recently. Two of them are Austin to Sarah Kate, Barrick to Logan. And what these engagements represent are brothers who saw something in these sisters, that they were happy to say no to the single life. They were happy to say no to the bachelor barn. And they were happy to save all their money, say no to something so they could say yes to this. They saw that the benefits far outweighed the cost. Have you been there before in your life? Where you've had to make a decision where you were thinking and considering, is what I'm about to do, is it actually worth it? And as we've continued to study the Gospel of Mark, that's a question that we're kind of pressed with now. You see, last week we saw that Jesus is beginning to reveal more and more about himself. He's beginning to tell everyone, here is what I'm here to do, and here's what I'm here to accomplish, and here is what it's going to cost you. You see, Jesus was a little bit of a a different of of a Messiah than people had anticipated because he's a Messiah that would die for his people, and he's a Messiah who would require his people to die for him. Many had longed for the Messiah, but were they willing to do what he required? So the question is presented to us today, is Jesus actually worth the cost? Is the benefit of Jesus, is the benefit of Jesus, does it far outweigh the cost? Is Jesus worth it? And if so, what makes Jesus worth it? In our passage this morning, I think we're going to see two examples, two reasons why Jesus is worth it. So look there with me now, and let's read along, or follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 13 of Mark chapter 9. This is what Mark wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Starting in verse 1, he says this, And he said to them, speaking of Jesus, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. 
let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been raised from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, what do the scribes say that, uh, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So what makes Jesus worth it? Why can he demand such a high cost? Why can he require so much of his people? I think there's two reasons. Number one, he is the answer to the promises of God. Jesus is the answer to the promises of God. That's going to be verses 1 through 5 and 11 through 13. And number two, he is the beloved son of God. Three verses 7 through 10. So number one, Jesus is the answer to the promises of God. And number two, Jesus is the beloved Son of God. It's my prayer this morning that you would get such a glimpse of Jesus that doing anything else but following him would be foolish in your eyes. That you would get such a glimpse of Jesus that you'd be happy to leave everything behind to know and follow him. Let's look at point one now. Jesus is worth the cost because he is the answer to the promises of God. So here we see right after Jesus tells them who he is, that he must suffer and die, and what it requires to follow him, that they also, his people, those who want him, must suffer and die, says this in verse 1. He says, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it comes with power. Now, I have to imagine this created a sense of anticipation that these people who were standing around Jesus, the crowd and the the disciples are thinking, all that God has promised is now about to come to pass. The end has come upon us. God's kingdom is here. And Jesus has even said, there are some among us who won't even die before they see it. What a moment in history that they get to be here and to be a part of it. And then he says, he transitions six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He leaves the crowd and the nine behind, and he goes up onto a mountain. Now, we've seen throughout Mark, it's often the case that when Jesus goes onto a mountain, he's seeking solitude. That's not the case here. Jesus is about to show the inner ring, those inner three, something new about himself. Something that he's told them, he is now going to show them. He is now going to show them the reason why he can ask so much of them. So we see here as they're walking, as they're journeying up, they're hiking, and I assume they're having a good time, something happens to Jesus. He's transfigured. He is transformed. His appearance is altered before him. 
Now, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus looked like in that moment, but he does in a sense because he tells us what his clothes looked like. If you look down, you can see this in verse 3. It says, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. You see, Jesus' clothes became radiant because Jesus became radiant. That's the reason that happened. What does it mean for someone or something to be radiant? How would you define that to a five-year-old? So it's like this. A few weeks ago on October the 14th, there was a solar eclipse. I don't know if you remember that or not. It was in the middle of the day on a Saturday. I had forgotten that it was actually going on. Um, and so I was looking outside. I'm like, why is it so dark? Like, it's bizarrely dark right now. And so I just went outside, and being a son of Alabama, educated by the, the great state of Alabama, I just looked up right in the sun. And I'm here to report that the sun is bright. You might say it's radiant. Jesus became so bright that he was brighter than the sun. Matthew says his, his face shone like the sun. He changed. He was altered. He became glorious before them. Can you imagine what it was like to be walking alongside Jesus, be having a conversation, and then Jesus is altered. He's radically changed, and you were like stunned by his glory. And then the moment where you kind of finally can see, you see Jesus standing and talking with Moses and Elijah. The two heroes of the faith that many had looked to and anticipated and loved to read about. He's standing there and talking with Moses and Elijah. And our dear brother Peter just can't help himself. He looks up and says, Jesus, this is really good for us to be here. And I'm like, Peter, my man, that's an obvious thing to say. Peter's that guy. He just can't help himself. He's the friend that talks too much at the party that you give him the, like, just don't do it anymore. Just stop. But can you blame him? I mean, in this moment, this is like kind of wild. Jesus is transfigured. He's talking to Moses and Elijah. What's so significant about this moment for them, and I don't know if they're, they're realizing it yet, they are seeing the promises of God come to fruition before their own eyes. So just go back to verse 1 for a second. Verse 1 is a verse that has often plagued some Christians. Because Jesus says, some, are, uh, some standing here will not taste death until they sing him, see the kingdom of God after his coming power. Did Jesus get the, the prophecy wrong? No, he, he didn't. I, and I, I think this could be a reference to Jesus' resurrection, that the disciples would see him. But I think more specifically, it's placed in verse 1 because it's talking about the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are the ones who saw the kingdom of God come in power before they died. That's what's happening here. The Jesus could have been talking about his resurrection. I think he's talking about his transfiguration. These men are seeing the kingdom come in power because they are seeing Jesus in all his glory. They are in this moment seeing Jesus in his post-resurrection state. They are seeing Jesus in his glorified state. It, as though, it is as though he's already died and been raised and he's glorified before them. They are seeing Jesus as he is right now in this moment. I can imagine it was overwhelming. I would be overwhelmed too, but Peter doesn't just stop there. He doesn't say, hey, it's really good for us to be here. He goes on and he makes a suggestion that may sound odd to us, but it would make sense in, in Peter's day. He says, let's build some tents. One for Elijah, one for Jesus, one for Moses. Peter is basically saying, hey, let's tabernacle up here. Does that language make sense to you if you know your Old Testament? And even this could be a reference that Peter wants to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths in the Old Testament was a, was a celebration that God commanded the nation of Israel to do every year. 
You see, they wandered in the wilderness. They did not have a home. They did not have a land, but they dwelt, they dwelt in booths and in tents. And yet God had given them all that they needed. So each year they were to celebrate the Feast of Booths, booths as a reminder that God was their provider. That they didn't get their homes by their own might. God was the one who had given those homes to them. And so even in Zechariah 14, you can go back and look there in verse 12. It seems the Feast of Booths seemed to play a significant role in the end times. They thought they would dwell in tents again because that meant that God had come down and he had tabernacled among them again. So they were looking for the day that God would come down again. They were looking for that day. So that's probably why Peter makes this reference and this suggestion because he knew that the day was coming and he believed the day had already come. So Peter's suggestion makes sense to us because he thought the day had come that, Jesus, that God had come down. He's very optimistic about what's taking place. But though his optimism was genuine, it was wrong. He misunderstood the moment. Yes, it was significant that they were there with Moses and Elijah. It was awesome. But he'd already seen Jesus, and seeing Jesus is better than seeing Moses and Elijah. See, what Peter should have done in that moment isn't say, let's build some tents and stay here forever. He should have been silent and said, Jesus, this is great, but you still have to suffer and die. Because that's what you told me you were going to do a few weeks ago. You must suffer, die, and be raised because this moment means nothing if Jesus doesn't suffer and die. Yes, this moment is significant. Why is it significant? Why is it a big deal that Moses and Elijah, why these two in particular are on this mountain with Jesus? What does it mean? Well, I think Moses is here representing the old covenant. I think Moses is here as the the covenant head of the the old covenant. You see, in the Old Testament, God saved Israel out of Egypt. And the way they were going to have a relationship with God is by entering in a covenant with him. And Moses was the one representing God to the people and the people to God. And as they were leaving Sinai, they, they leave Egypt, they go to Sinai, they're there about a year, and God gives them the law to say, if you're going to be my people, here's what you must do. And the people say, we'll do all that you tell us to do. And they agreed with God that if they failed to do it, that they deserved God's judgment. Well, time shows us that they failed to do what they said they would do. And God did judge them. But God is merciful and he did not cast them off forever. God had promised that he would send a servant. He would send a king who would save his people once and for all. And they were longing for him to come. And the sign that God was coming to restore his people was what? That Elijah would come. So he's seeing here, we see Moses and Elijah, it's a, it's a declaration that the restoration of God's people is finally at hand. That's why we read Malachi 4 earlier. That's a, the prophecy that we see that the, the day of the Lord would come and the sign that it was coming was Elijah would come. So Elijah is here and not only here in this moment, he had already come in John the Baptist. That's why Jesus says later on in verses 12 and 13, Elijah has come and they did with him what they wanted. They beheaded John the Baptist. They wanted nothing to do with him. Now, I know this is a lot of teaching. There's a lot going on here, trying to make sense of the old covenant and make sense of Elijah. What does this all mean? What is it all saying is this. The transfiguration is this, that God is saying he is faithful to his promises. God is saying in this moment that Jesus is the answer to all of his promises. That's the point. That's what he's saying. As one commentator said, the transfiguration is God's own exegesis of the prophetic word. 
The transfiguration is basically God saying, open up your Old Testament, I'm going to tell you what it means. God is saying, this is what I've been working on, this is what I've been doing throughout history. Moses and Elijah point to Jesus. Their work find fulfillment in him. See, Israel had been faithless. They had failed. They failed the test in the wilderness, but God would not fail. He would send forth his son who would be in the wilderness, tempted and tried by Satan, and he would pass the test. And he would crush the serpent's head once and for all. Israel had failed to keep the law, but God would not fail. He sent Jesus not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Israel's kings had failed to reign and rule as God had instructed them to do, but God would not fail. He sent forth Jesus to be that faithful king who would rule and reign forever. Israel had failed to be the light to the nations that God had commanded them to be, but God would not fail. He sent forth Jesus to gather a people from every tribe and nation. Israel's kingdom had fallen. Their people had been exiled, but God would not fail. He sent forth Jesus to establish a kingdom where the citizens would never be exiled again. Jesus is the promised seed, he's the promised son, and he's the promised king. He is God's yes to all of his promises. That's what's happening in the transfiguration. It's making sense of all of the Bible. So you look at the law, you look at the prophets, but they're pointing to Jesus. So look and listen to him. Now for some... They had been longing and anticipating for this day to come. And I assume there are many who were doubting if God would actually fulfill his promises. And what this shows us is that God always fulfills his promises. He is never forgetful or unfaithful. God does what he does in his own perfect timing and in his own perfect way. It's like this when I was in eighth grade. I was on the baseball team, and every, in the, during the spring, we'd have baseball practice after school. And so I'm, I'm one of three. I'm the youngest of three, often forgotten and not cared for like I should have been. Um, and uh, so my parents had three kids. Each kid was at a different school, so they were always keeping the roads of Birmingham extremely hot. It would often be the case that I would be the last one at practice by myself waiting for my parents to get me, which is a terrible feeling, right? And this is pre-cell phones. Uh, and so occasionally I would just grab a ride with my friend's parents and my parents would show up and I was nowhere to be found. Needless to say, that was not a good decision on Ben Lacey's part. To the point where it got so serious with my dad, he sat me down and he said, I just need you to know this. I want to ask you a couple questions. When have I ever forgotten you? When have I ever not done what I said I would do? You see, he, he was faithful to his promises It was not in my timing, but he always came and got me like he said he would. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful to his promises. It may not have been Israel's timing. It may not have been Peter, James, and John's timing, but it was God's perfect timing and in God's perfect way. That is what the transfiguration is declaring. If you were to look at your life recently, who are you more likely to trust the promises of? The promises of your own dreams? The promises of your own flesh, the promises of the world, or the promises of God. I I would imagine that if you were to sit down over the course of your life and you were to determine who had been the most faithful in your life, it would be no contest. It would absolutely be no contest. No, I get it. I'm going to be honest with you. The Christian life is hard. 
Fighting sin can be exhausting and sometimes it feels impossible. It's difficult to wait on God when you have what you don't want and what you want you don't have. It's hard to continue to wait on God in a broken world. And there's moments it feels like Jesus is never coming back. It feels like our world is going to continue to spiral in chaos and tyranny. But brothers and sisters, if God has proven himself to be anything, he has proven himself to be faithful. And if you're tempted to doubt that today, you just need to look and stare at Jesus. Because of Jesus, the sin you struggle with will one day have no place in you. Because of Jesus, you may be afflicted, you will never be overcome. Because there is nothing that can separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ. Because of Jesus, everything has to. It has no option. It all must work together in your life for your salvation. Because Jesus said so. And because of Jesus, in the end, I can assure you of this, everything will all be worth it. The suffering, the sorrow, the pain you bear in this life right now, in the end, will all be worth it. You see, Jesus is worth it. And he tells us that we get to be made like him, not just in his sufferings, but in his glory. Paul says in Romans 8, 17, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life matches up with the king's life. It is suffering and then it's glory. You see, Jesus can ask a lot of us because what he gives is so much better than what he asks. He gives us far more than he would ever ask of us. And so he can say, carry your cross, lay down your life, deny yourself. And by doing that, he's saying, come and live the life that I've lived. And if you'll suffer with me now, you'll have the glory that I have forever. The pain and sorrow will cease when you are transformed into the glory of Christ. The transfiguration is a revelation that not only is Jesus the suffering servant, not only is he the, the king, the, the promised king, he's the answer to all of God's promises. So if you need assurance today, and you can't find it within you, and I can assure you, you'll never find assurance within, just stare at Jesus. Keep staring at Jesus, and he's the way you make it through this life. Keep staring at Jesus, because he is the answer to all of God's promises. So is Jesus worth the cost? Is he worth laying your life down for? Well, this passage says yes, because he's the answer to all of God's promises. And not only that, he is the beloved son of God. He's the beloved son of God. Let's look at point two. We're going to look at this in verses 7 through 10. Verses 7 through 10. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, we don't know how long this event took place. It could have been minutes. It could have been hours. But we know this, 
that eventually Jesus is overshadowed with Elijah and Moses. So what's happened? There's two significant things that begin to take place. As Peter speaks, God responds. And God's response is this cloud comes down and surrounds Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Why is a cloud significant? What does it mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the cloud coming down meant that God's presence had come down. That God was now amongst his people. And this whole situation is very reminiscent of Moses on Mount Sinai. If you go back and read Exodus 19 through 24, when God is giving the law, in particular verses 15 of 16 of chapter 24, the cloud comes down on the mountain and it surrounds Moses. It was thick and it was there for six days. And no one else could go up except Moses. Why? Because God had come down. So this cloud is a representation that God had come down. God had come down in the giving of the law with a cloud, and now he'd come down with a cloud in the fulfilling of the law. Not only does God come down in a cloud like he did at Sinai, but he also speaks from the cloud like he did at Sinai. And in verse 7, he says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The same voice and the same message at Jesus' baptism has now come back at Jesus' transfiguration to declare that Jesus is the beloved Son of God, the eternally begotten of God, the one whom the Father is eternally happy with has now come down. The disciples, what's amazing is they receive a divine revelation from God in the presence of God himself, and they live to tell about it. In the Old Testament, People couldn't just gather around the presence of God if they wanted to. Why? Because they would die because of their sin. That's why they need a a representative. But here, Peter, James, and John live. Why? Because Jesus came down so that God and his people could dwell together again. That's why they live to tell about it. The transfiguration is not only a declaration that Jesus is the answer to all of God's promises, it is the declaration that God had come down in the person of Jesus. It's again a reminder, an affirmation to say this is all true, that this is God in the flesh. flesh. Jesus wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a, a good moral teacher, a good example. But he was God in the flesh. How could he be declared the beloved son of God if he was not one with God? He is God. He had come down. What's amazing is after they hear the voice, they look up and who's standing there? No Moses, no Elijah. No cloud. Jesus only. For that is all that they need. God's answer to Peter, God responds to Peter. He says, you need no tent. I'm not coming back in a tabernacle or a temple. I've come down in human flesh. You see, people had been longing and looking for the day for the temple to be restored. For something more glorious than Solomon's temple to be established. And something more glorious had come. God had come in human flesh to dwell with his people forever. What would the disciples' response be to this? What is God calling them to do in light of this great revelation? You would imagine that God would say, this is my beloved son, so grab your sword, boys. We're taking down Rome today. This is my beloved son, so get ready to rule and reign. What does God tell them to do in light of who Jesus is? Look at it again in verse 7. He says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That seems to me a little anticlimactic. You want something more charging, something more intense, 
And God says, listen to him. It reminds me of growing up in Southern Baptist churches and going to youth camp. I don't know if you had that experience, but you'd go into the week expecting something awesome to happen, something exciting to happen. So you'd bring your CDs ready to burn them, right? Eager and ready to go home to shut down your MySpace because you're like, I'm going to do big things for God. We're going to take over our whole city. We're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission is going to get fulfilled in our day. And one of the last nights, either Thursday or Friday, would be cry night. If you know what that means, you know what it means, right? Everyone's coming just eager and ready to cry. Like the first, you know, strum of the guitar, but it's like weeping already. I'm like, what are we doing here? And that night, the, the pastor and the band were tuned up perfectly. They were doing everything they could to get you to make a decision, to do something big for Jesus. And there were all these big commands at the end. There would be like a 45-minute invitation, music playing in the background, and they would ask people to do these great things for God. And then we'd go back again the next year, and they'd ask us to do those same great things for God. But little did they realize that all they needed to hear that night was you need to listen to Jesus. You can commit to doing all these great things and burning all your stuff and living as a monk or whatever you want to do. You can commit to all those things, but the thing you need to do more than anything else is listen to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there's times in our lives where we want to do more than that. But all God requires of us is to listen to Jesus. People want to know, what is God's desire? What is his will for my life? What is he going to call me to do? I want to do great things. I want him to tell me in my Cheerios in the morning. And he's already told each one of us, just listen to Jesus. If you're listening to Jesus now, you are doing what God has for you and for your life. If you're here and you're, you're, you're not a Christian, let's say you believe in God, but you're not following Jesus. The thing that God desires for you today is to listen to Jesus. See, the reason why our world is chaotic and it's a mess is because we choose to listen to ourselves and not to Jesus. That's the problem. And what does Jesus say that is so significant? Jesus makes a bold claim to say that the only way for you to be made right with God is through him. He's the only one who says that. The only way for you to be made right with God, for your sins to be forgiven, is through Jesus alone. See, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He died on the cross in the place of sinners and was raised from the dead so that whoever would repent and believe, also known as a listen to Jesus, they'd have life everlasting. The thing that will define not only this life but your eternity is how you respond to that. Listen to Jesus. Do what he says you will do, what he calls you to do, and you can have life everlasting. Brothers and sisters, this Listening to Jesus that God calls us to means that everything Jesus tells us to do is good and right. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that because our flesh doesn't want to believe it. But everything he calls us to do is good and right for Jesus is good and right. And this listening is not merely hearing words. It's a disposition. It's a posture we're all called to have towards Jesus. It's kind of what he called us to earlier picking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following him. It's a disposition and posture where we say, Jesus, you can have all of me. Every part of me is yours. There's no part in which is off limits to you. It's like this in the days ahead. Many of you will have family over for Thanksgiving or Christmas, and the house, at least the majority of the house, will look awesome. And you'll say to the family and friends, you can just treat yourself like you're at home. My house is your house. And you don't fully mean that, or at least I don't, because there's that one room, there's that one closet where there is a pile of laundry or a bunch of toys that we want no one to see that day. But with Jesus, you're saying to him, I'm happy for you to see that closet I want no one else to see. The room that I'm trying to hide from everybody else, Jesus, that's yours too. 
I'm happy for you to move in and make yourself right at home in my life. That's what it means to listen to Jesus. There's no area of your life that is off limits to him. And listen, I want to be honest with you. This sounds wonderful, but it's also very painful. If If you say you're listening to Jesus and you feel no pain, I'm not certain you're listening to Jesus. You see, your, your sin has such a grip on your heart, it, it is no fan of no rival. It wants to stay deeply embedded in your heart as long as possible. And Jesus has come to extract the sin from your heart, and it will be painful. But the pain he does is a good pain because it brings healing in your life. He's helping put to death the old man so that you can put on the new man. So you can be transformed into the degrees and to degrees of glory as he saved you to experience and to know. So I know some of you are here and you are discouraged. You feel the weightiness of the Christian life. You feel like listening to Jesus has been hard. You feel like the cross has been heavy. And I just want to encourage you to keep listening to Jesus even when you don't feel like it. Because one day we won't get just to listen, we'll get to see Jesus. And so the struggles we feel now will cease in his presence forever. So I want to encourage you, keep listening to Jesus when he identifies and confronts sin in your life. Keep listening to Jesus when you wake up on Sunday morning and you don't want to come to church. Keep listening to Jesus when the world seems so broken, it feels like he can't fix it. Keep listening to Jesus when it feels as though your doubts speak a better word. If you want to spend your life well, spend your life listening to Jesus. That's a life well spent in God's book. That's what God has for all of us today. And Jesus here, he provides his disciples an immediate opportunity to listen to him. As we conclude, let's look at verse 9 verse 10. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So Jesus does what he's previously done in the Gospel of Mark. When he's performed a great miracle, he said, don't say anything about it. Except this time it's a little bit different. It's a caveat. What does he say? Don't tell anybody until when? Until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And it says that they did a good job. They kept it to themselves, yet they continued to discuss what this resurrection from the dead might mean. Even though Jesus had told them, they still didn't understand even though the Old Testament was filled with passages that declare the, the resurrection, Isaiah 26, 19 says this, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. That's a general resurrection of God's people. It's going to happen to one to all people, but specifically for God's people. They didn't understand Psalm 16, 10, which says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy ones see corruption. Peter, James, and John should have anticipated because God had told them this was what's going to happen. Yet they still did not understand. Now, it would be easy for us to look down our self-righteous noses at Peter, James, and John and say, how did you not get it? You saw Jesus transfigured before your own eyes. How do you not see? But we forget, you cannot understand the things of God if you don't have the Spirit of God. What's fun about Peter, James, and John's life is we get to see their beginning and their end. You see, we see these men go from being fishermen to stumbling and struggling along the way to finding themselves on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And not only that, we get to see what Jesus does with their lives. You see, these men 
would go from not understanding to completely understanding. They would go from not getting who Jesus was to even laying their life down for him. What I love about Peter, this Peter who is a goofball and says things what seems to be at the wrong time, in the wrong place, in the wrong way. This Peter who confessed Jesus as the Christ and the very next moment rebukes Jesus for what Jesus says he needs to do. This Peter who will soon, will see, deny Jesus, even though he said he would not. This Peter will one day finally get it right. He won't get it wrong forever. He'll finally understand and see. And he'll declare it with confidence and certainty. In Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, when they're filled with the Spirit of God, Peter just quotes Psalm 16, the one we reference, and he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, no longer doubting, no longer unsure about who Jesus is. He says, I will say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Peter, in front of the very people he just denied Jesus to several days before, stands up and says, this Jesus is raised from the dead, and there is life in his name. Finally able to proclaim the message that Jesus told him to wait. What happened? What changed in Peter? What changed in James and John that they go from not understanding Jesus to to James being killed with a sword? To Peter, which we believe he was he was crucified upside down in Rome. To John, after seeing all, many of his friends die and even some be martyred, exiled and alone on an island, why would they go from here, seeing Jesus transfigured and not understanding, to now being willing to give their life for him? Well, they finally understood and saw that Jesus is the answer to all of God's promises. They finally saw and understood that he is the beloved son of God, and they were happy to lay their life down if it meant they gained Christ. Because there was no cost too high. Jesus was that glorious and that good. That it didn't matter what the world threw at them or what the world sought to take from them. Knowing and being like Jesus was worth it. Because they knew that this life is temporary. In light of eternity, the affliction we face now will be momentary. And glory with Jesus will be forever. Oh, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to see today that Jesus is the answer to all of God's promises. And he is the beloved son of God. And he's worth whatever cost he calls you to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now with grateful hearts that you have given us your word so that we might see who the Lord Jesus is, that we might see that he is the answer to all of your promises, that he is the declaration that you're faithful, that that none of your promises have an expiration date. They all have fulfillment dates. He's the declaration that in the end, everything you said you will do, you'll bring to pass. Jesus is the reminder to us this day that our present struggles, our present affliction will one day pass. Father, we pray for us as believers this day that we would not forget that you were faithful, that we would not forget that Jesus is the beloved Son of God, come down to dwell with his people forever. 
Father, that you would encourage us as we walk through this wicked and broken world which seeks to, seeks to distract us and lay us aside so that we would no longer pursue the Lord. Cause us to be faithful like you. Cause us to see and savor the Lord Jesus. May we all be found in him on that day. Father, we pray for any among us now who, who haven't believed, who've not listened, that you might, by your grace, give them a heart to believe and know and trust him. Father, we thank you for your kindness to speak to us, not only in saving us, but to continue to speak to us as you sanctify us and sustain us as we journey towards heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.